We're concluding our study looking at the hidden treasures of Christmas. Last week we said that tradition is the enemy of the truth. And Jesus said that tradition undermines God's word, Matthew 15, verse 6. You know, because of tradition, people miss out on incredible truths and blessings all through God's word. You know, tradition blinds people and builds up walls against the truth. You know, and I do find it interesting to see how people hold on to their tradition and they'll vehemently defend their tradition over and above the truth. And often the situation is that tradition has been something that's been ingrained, it's been going on for a long time, and you get passed, you know, from other people, maybe your parents, family, whatever, a culture. Um, when you come up against the truth and can contrast to tradition, it may be something you've never experienced. So often people's reaction is to reject the truth. Paul got to speak to the Bereans, and they had a great attitude because we're told in Acts 17, uh, that they received the word with all readiness, but they searched the scriptures to see whether these things were so. It's a much better position than just dismiss the truth because we love our tradition. And of course, these things are never truer than in regard to the Christmas narrative. So at the outset, we've got to be prepared to let go of the tradition that we've all been brought up with. You know, in search of these hidden treasures that we're looking for, it's essential that we have the correct starting point. And that, of course, is God's word. It's God's word that matters, not our opinion, not our traditions. It's God's word. You know, if God's word supports it, fine. And as we said, you know, there are some traditions, and we all have our typical traditions at Christmas time and things we like. You know, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But when it comes to something that supersedes or changes God's word, well, then we need to be very cautious indeed. Now, last week we saw that the reason Bethlehem was chosen and some 500 years beforehand, it was recorded by the prophet Micah, was because it was the town of sacrificial lambs. Now that in itself is something that tradition has robbed us of. People don't think of Bethlehem and think of sacrificial lambs, but they should. That's what the town was. All the lambs on the hills around Bethlehem had one purpose and one alone. And that was to be offered in the sacrifices in Jerusalem. Other sheep around the country were used for other things and and food and other things, of course. But the lambs around Bethlehem were specifically intended for sacrifice in Jerusalem. That is just a revelation. When I understood that, it made so much sense. And, of course, we then understand that the reason the shepherds were chosen wasn't just a random choice. It wasn't because their job was kind of a lowly occupation at that time. But it's because that their purpose, their, their role in life, their job was to inspect these lambs that were destined for sacrifice because they had to make sure that these lambs were without spot or blemish because any lamb that was to be offered for the Passover celebrations or for the weekly Sabbath uh, sacrifices for the daily offerings that were going up in Jerusalem, all these lambs had to be without spot and without blemish. And the shepherds looking after these sheep, as we found out last week, there's a Jewish scholar I made the point that they were all, the shepherds themselves were Levites. They were from the tribe of Levi. And they had this task of making sure that the lambs were without spot or blemish. Now, question, how could God ensure that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem? I mean, Israel's a big place, yeah? And, and certainly it's been, it was made clear that it was one of Abraham's descendants. And then we find it comes down, it was one of David's line. Scripture makes that clear. But then God states 500 years or so before through Micah that Bethlehem is the place that the Messiah will be born. Well, how can God make sure that happens? Well, by engineering the circumstances, by means of the Roman census, to have Mary and Joseph travel to their family town. Now, Mary, we understand, was relatively young, probably in her late teens. Joseph, somewhere around about the same age, maybe just obviously a little bit older. So they hadn't been away from Bethlehem all that long. And so, you know, they had family there. We know Leviticus, or from from, um, the book of Leviticus, that with the rule and law for for land and for the um, rules regarding the Jubilee, any land that was given away had to be given back to the family, to to the owners in the year of Jubilee, so that the the titles didn't pass outside of their own tribes. So there's no question that they had family in Bethlehem. 
as God engineers, that they travel back because of that Roman census. But then there's another problem. Because God had also declared in the book of Micah, not just that Bethlehem was going to be the place of, or the town of birth, but that the Messiah at his first appearing would come to the tower of the flock. That's precisely what Micah chapter 4 verse 8 states. And specifically, this tower of the flock in the Hebrew is Migdal Eda. It's a tower that was on the edge of Bethlehem itself. It was a place that was used by the shepherds as a lookout to watch over and guard their sheep. It was also the place where the lambs were born and protected. They were wrapped in these garments that used to belong to the priests. They were stripped, they ripped into shreds and uh, referred to as swaddling bands. And they would wrap the sheep in these things and they would lay them in this bit of rock at the bottom of the tower, which was known as the manger. Not a manger, the manger. So how could God ensure that Mary and Joseph end up there? I mean, God's nailed his colors to the mast of Bethlehem. That was sorted. But he's also done the same here by saying in Micah 4 verse 8 that the tower of the flock will be the place the Messiah appears. That's what many of the Jewish scholars understood before the event. They, that's, they believe that's where the Messiah would make his first appearance. We looked at some of those quotes last week. Now, again, we know they were returning to Bethlehem, their family town, as a result of the census. So the obvious thing for Mary and Joseph would be to stay with relatives. It's preposterous to think they would, they would entertain anything other than that. Crumbs, if you were going back to your hometown, you'd go and stay with family, wouldn't you? Mary and Joseph were no different. And what could possibly prevent family from them welcoming them in? You see, as we looked at last week, we've got this whole narrative that's been written for us about an innkeeper and an inn and a stable and all those things. They are not found in Scripture. The word that's translated in in some versions of the Bible is actually uh, properly translated guest chamber. It's translated that way elsewhere. It's typically an annex on the side of the house, and it's the law that ensured that Mary and Joseph would end up in the exact place that God wanted them to. Why so? Well, because as we saw last week, it's almost certain that Jesus was born on the 1st of Tishri in the year 2 BC. That year, it was the Feast of Trumpets. It was a feast day. Now, if you know anything at all about the Jews, you'll know that they're very passionate about their feast days, and they had to be. God had laid some very strict rules down regarding the feasts including the fact that if you became defiled, you could not celebrate one of the feasts. Now, Numbers 9 verse 6 gives us an example of um, some individuals that were defiled for a feast, who happened to be the Passover, and so they go to Moses and say, we want to celebrate the feast, but we can't. What do we do? And God gave them special dispensation that they would celebrate it a month later. But clearly they weren't allowed to celebrate in a defiled state. And there were a number of things that could bring defilement. Could be that you touched a dead body. It could be you touched a carcass of an animal. And a number of these things were for hygiene reasons. But there were some spiritual things associated with it as well. But the question really then is, would a family member or family members really turn away a heavily pregnant mother? Well, if Mary and Joseph arrive on the eve of the Feast of Trumpets, no family would want to welcome them in. Because it means that by doing so, they would become defiled. Everything that Mary touched would become defiled. She wouldn't even be able to enter the house without the house becoming defiled, which means the whole family would not be able to celebrate the feast. And these things were really significant because the laws regarding defilement were serious, so much so that you could be put out of Israel. You could lose your place and status in the nation. Numbers 19, 20, and 22 give us that information. It really was a very serious thing. And, you know, so much so that you weren't even allowed, if your parents died, you weren't allowed to touch their bodies either. Very serious rules. Now, just want to take you to Leviticus chapter 12. Chapter 11 of Leviticus deals with sin by external contact. Okay? And a lot of hygiene things are included in that for obvious reasons as you look at it. You know, it's things that can defile you that you touch on the outside. You know, and the Jews had this understanding of washing with hands way before COVID, by the way. I mean, uh, even through the, the Dark Ages, there was lots of questions about why the Jews remained so healthy and other nations and other groups of people suffered with various illnesses and ailments. It was because they followed the laws that God had given them regarding the right type of food to eat and food hygiene and everything else. 
But chapter 12, 12 deals with sin on the inside. The fact that we are defiled internally as well. Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Behold, this is David speaking, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are naturally inherently sinful people. We've inherited sin all the way down from Adam and Eve, of course. Let's just look at Leviticus 12. Then we read, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman have conceived a seed and born a male child, so she's pregnant and she gives birth, then she shall be unclean seven days. According to the days of the separation for her infirmity, shall she be unclean. Now elsewhere, we understand not just herself, but anything she would touch and sit on or be near, that would all become unclean. You understand the problem now? Verse 3, and in the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Now this was, of course, the law, the covenant that God had established with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and so on. And it was to be a peculiar, unique sign for the children of Israel that they were gods, they were set apart for God. It just speaks of cutting away the flesh life. And of course, this is the object lesson that God used to, to help them to remember this. Now, just as an aside, modern medical science has discovered that a newborn baby has a peculiar susceptibility to bleeding between the second and the fifth days of life. Now, vitamin K, which is needed for blood clotting, is not normally formed in the normal amount until the fifth to the seventh day. Now, there's a second element for the normal clotting of blood. It's prothrombin, which is in a minimal in the first few days of a baby's life. Okay, this is the blood clotting agent. But it goes to 110% of normal on the eighth day. And then after that, it reduces and levels off to 100% to, to normal. Okay, so Moses somehow managed to get right the very best day for a baby to be circumcised was the eighth day. And we now know medically that that is indeed the best day. Incredible. So this is what Leviticus is telling us. If a woman has a baby and a baby's son, she's going to be unclean seven days and on the eighth day, then the baby's to be circumcised. And then we read, and then she shall continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days, and she shall touch no hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. She remains defiled up until the end of this time. And now we're told, verse 5, if she bears a male child, a girl, uh, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in a separation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying threescore and six days. So to make it clear, we have seven days and then 33 days. It's 40, day, 40 days of uh, defilement, if you like, uh, if you have a male child. And if you have a female child, it's 14 days plus 66, so a total of 80 days. And you know, why, why the difference? Well, a lot of it goes back to Genesis. And First uh, Timothy 2.14 says, Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived was in transgression. And we won't go into the details of it now, but there's a lot more from a spiritual perspective behind these things as well. But let's just pick up verse 6. And when the days of her purifying are fulfilled, for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring... Now notice what they're told to bring. Bring a lamb, a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation unto the priest... Well, of course, the tabernacle was the tent they had in the wilderness, and eventually that landed at Shiloh in the land of Israel. And then the tabernacle was moved from there by King David to Jerusalem. And then eventually, of course, David wanted to build a house for the Lord. And so Solomon is the one that effectively transitions from the tabernacle to the temple. So the temple then takes over all the things that the, uh, the tabernacle was then used for. So by the time we get to Mary and Joseph, of course, the temple was standing and so where we read tabernacle, we understand that we're referring now to the temple. And so they were to bring this offering to the tabernacle unto the priest. And verse 7 says, Who shall offer it before the Lord and make an atonement for her? And she shall be cleansed from the issue of her blood. This is the law for her that has born a male or a female. But notice this. And if she be not able to bring a lamb, then she shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. So if you were poor, if you didn't have the means, the resources to offer a lamb, then you're allowed to offer two turtle doves, two young pigeons. 
the one for the burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make an atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Now, this is really significant, because let's jump to Luke's account in Luke chapter 2. And we read, it's the first part of the chapter spoken about the shepherds and so on. And they go away rejoicing after these things, after they've come to their tower and they've seen this baby, just as the angel said, wrapped in these swaddling bands. That was a sign they were given, laying in the manger, their manger, where these sacrificial lambs were born. They go away rejoicing. And then we read this, and when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child. So according to the law, Mary and Joseph circumcised Jesus on the eighth day, and his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And then verse 22 is really important. It says, and when the days of her purification, notice this, according to the law of Moses. Everything they did was according to the law. Were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Did you, did you read that? Did you get that? Joseph and Mary and Jesus pack up and leave Bethlehem after 40 days, according to the law, because they have to go to Jerusalem. Now, it amazes me that somehow in our Christmas tradition and narrative, we have the mindset that Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem and that's where they resided, that's where they lived. No, they didn't live in Bethlehem. The only reason they'd gone to Bethlehem was for the census. And no doubt they were keen to get back home. And they wait, because Bethlehem is only about eight miles from Jerusalem, they wait for the eight days as they had to for the circumcision, and they know they've got to go to Jerusalem anyway after the next, uh, after another um, 33 days or so for this ceremony, effectively according to the law. And so they bring Jesus to Jerusalem and they present him to the Lord there. And we're told, verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Did you notice that? Again, according to what is said in the law, and what did they offer? A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. They didn't offer a lamb. Why? Because they didn't have the means or resources. What does that tell you? Well, it means they certainly weren't sitting on a pot of gold the three kings had suddenly dropped off. Because if they had, they'd have broken the law by not offering a lamb. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He trusted God. He believed in God's word. He knew that God will fulfill his word. And the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. Wow, what a, a revelation that God says to Simeon, you're not going to die until you get to see the Messiah. Verse 27, and he came by the Spirit into the temple. We miss a lot of these things. He came by the Spirit into the temple. That day, I don't know what he was planning on doing. I don't know where he was thinking of going or what he was doing with his time. But suddenly the Holy Spirit says, you need to go to the temple now. And so obedient, he goes to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, now lettest thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. You imagine Mary and Joseph and Mary particularly holding on to a newborn baby. And this man comes in, she has no idea who he is. And he kind of like says, can I? So she passes him over. And he's looking at his baby and says, now let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. I don't know what Mary thought of those words. She already knew this was something just so beyond her understanding from the moment that Gabriel had arrived and given her the announcement that she was going to bear the Messiah. Which thou hast prepared for before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles. Well, praise God for that sentence. And the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. See, they marveled. They were like, wow, what does all this mean? And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. 
Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Piercing words from Simeon. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanael of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, about 84 years old, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instant, again, the Holy Spirit engineering it. She just arrives at that particular moment, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spoke to him, spoke of him to all them that looked for redemption in Israel. And when they had performed all things, according to the law of the Lord, notice again, according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Did you notice that? They went home. Where else would they go? They lived in Nazareth. The only reason they'd gone to Bethlehem was for the census. So after these 40 days, they come back to the temple. They offer sacrifices according to the law for purification, and they go home. See? God was working with all of these things. Now, a tradition alert. These are, these are the things, unfortunately, the tradition has introduced, or so many of them, that we need to be aware of. You see, that's a typical Christmas picture we think of. You'll get it on cards this year. I guarantee you, somebody's going to send you a card, and it's going to have three kings on camels going to a stable with a star over it. Well, firstly, they were not kings. They were magi. We'll talk about that in a moment. Secondly, there weren't three of them. There was a multitude of them, enough to shake Jerusalem, we're told. Thirdly, they did not ride on camels. They were Persians. They rode on horses. They're aware the idea of camels came on. Number four, they did not visit Bethlehem. Because Mary and Joseph, as we've just seen, according to the scripture, went back home to Nazareth. Which means they didn't go to a stable, and it wasn't a stable anyway which also means that the star did not lead them to Bethlehem. And yet they are things you will find everybody thinks took place. Now, you may have seen on the news this week, I had to chuckle. <laughs> Salisbury Cathedral are doing their reenactment of the nativity, and they've got real camels. And I'm not sure whether we should let them know or not. I mean, it's going to be lovely, and the kids are going to love seeing the camels, but none of it's in Scripture. This is all tradition. just want to talk a little bit about this whole idea of the, the monarchy in Israel. So important in understanding this. The law had to be established before Jesus could come, but so did the monarchy. Now, we find way back in the book of Genesis, his character Melchizedek. Now, he was a king and a priest of Jerusalem. But we discover, and this is something that only come to light in the last 10 years or so, that he was part of a long line of kings and priests in Jerusalem who worshipped the one true God. These were no pagans. They worshipped the same God that Abraham then worshipped. We have that account in Genesis 14, and Abraham meets Melchizedek. And their reign spans a thousand years from just after the time of the flood. That's incredible. It means that on the throne in Jerusalem for a period of a thousand years, we have king and priest. Same role together. It's a forerunner of what is to come with the millennium when Jesus will rule from Jerusalem for a period of a thousand years. Another king, priest ruling in Jerusalem. You see, God had always intended for a monarchy for the nation of Israel, but had stated to them, I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges of whom thou said, give me a king and princes. You see, God had made it clear he was to be their king. But they complained they wanted to be like the nations around them. God didn't want that to happen. In fact, Balaam, in his prophecy that's recorded in Numbers 23, says, Has he not beheld iniquity in Jacob? Sorry, he has not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither has he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord, his God, is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. A prophecy that the kingdom was going to be established, but it was going to be in God's timing. Now, the problem, of course, is that initially the people cried out they wanted to be like the people. They wanted a visible king. They weren't content just to have God as their king. 
And so they kind of jumped the gun and they appointed Saul as king and that, of course, ended in failure. Man's government, government of man will always be lacking at best and tyrannical at worst. But then in God's time, he appointed a king, David, a man after his own heart, as a model and a forerunner of his ultimate plan to rule over his people himself. In 2 Samuel 7, it's documented there that God promises David, seven times, by the way, seven always has an idea of complete in Scripture. Seven times he's promised that David's descendants will sit on the throne. We read verse 12 and 13, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, of course, Solomon is part of that prophecy, but clearly it goes way beyond Solomon. Solomon is not going to live forever, or not rule and reign forever. But one of his descendants would, of course, he speaks of the Messiah. And of course, as we saw last week in Isaiah 7, it says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. This was speaking to Ahab, the king at the time. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and to choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou borest shall be forsaken of both her kings. Now, really important scripture because it's saying that, yes, the monarchy by this point was established, but there's going to come a point that both the kings, the north and the south, Israel and Judah, their kings are going to go. But at some point after that, the Lord himself is going to give this sign of this virgin who's going to conceive this child, Emmanuel, God with us, the king that God promised. Now, Zedekiah, when we do our history, we find was the last king of Judah. In 587 BC, he's taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, and the crown effectively is taken. There's no more kings in Israel after that point. The crown is taken away to Babylon, and that's really where the seat of power remained. Now let's just turn to Matthew's gospel and draw these threads together. And we read now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and I come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. That's not going to happen if three doddery old guys on camels turn up. There was a whole entourage. We'll talk about it in a moment. Notice the expression there. There came wise men, literally magi. We'll talk about it in a moment as well. Saying, where is he that has been born? Or where, in other words, putting that is, they go to Herod, who was this Roman appointee, and they say, where is the rightful king of Israel? For we've come to worship him. Can you imagine how that made Herod feel? Probably a little bit uncomfortable. And we're told all Jerusalem was troubled as a result. Now, as I said, verse 1 calls them magi. Uh, that's the, the, the Greek text. He's very specific. Now, the magi come up time and time again in ancient history. Who were they? Where did they come from? Why did they travel so far? And how did they even know about this king? How many of them were there? And why was all Jerusalem troubled? Well, the magi were actually one of the most powerful groups of men that existed in the ancient world that would be very well known at that time. They were the priests of Media. Of course, the Media and Persian Empire merged together, the Medo-Persian Empire. But they were renowned for interpreting dreams. They'd mixed up the science of astronomy with the superstition of astrology. And they started trying to predict the future, fortune-telling, sorcery, that kind of thing. And by the way, the word magic is derived from the word magi, as is the word magistrate. They had a political and a religious component to their roles. Now, as their reputation grew, they were looked to for advice by kings and governments. And there was no government in the East at that time that would be without a team of magi. All important decisions would first be run past the magi, and particularly the appointment of a king. And so they got this reputation of being those that would appoint kings. If you're going to appoint your next king, you want it to be someone that's going to be ruling, who would rule well, not just whittle away or destroy all the work that you as a king have done. And so they were consulted as to who should be the next king. 
And they make a number of biblical appearances. And in some of the previous studies, we've gone through a number of these, but just a few to mention. In Esther, chapter 1, then the king said to the wise men, there you are, these are the magi, which knew the times, for so the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. We find in the book of Daniel, after Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, then the king commanded all the magicians, magi, and the astrologers, and the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, they were the Babylonian priestly group. As I said, the, Medo, the, the Medo-Persian priestly group were the Magi. And they were very kind of uh, antagonistic toward each other. It's quite interesting to see the battles that go on in the book of Daniel between these groups. And, and the king comes and asks them to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, we're told. Then we find at the end of uh, this whole scenario, Daniel chapter 2, as Daniel interprets this dream. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Now, the expression there means all of the, the Chaldeans and the Magi and everything else. He becomes ruler over all of them. Later, under Darius, he becomes, Jeremiah uses the expression, Rab Mag, which is the chief of the Magi. It's a role that was given to Daniel. It's unusual because it was typically a hereditary sect. But he's given that incredible position. So it seems that much happened to the Magi under Daniel's ministry. Daniel was put in charge of them. In chapter 5 uh, of, uh, of the book of Daniel, verse 7, uh, we've got the account of Belshazzar's feast. And it's interesting because the other groups are there, but the Magi by this point are not. It seems that they've got out of this kind of sorcery fortune-telling stuff. They're not included in that group, which is quite interesting. And it seems that many of the Magi carried on as true believers. Daniel had obviously spoken to them. Daniel was given very clear prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. And clearly Daniel had shared this information with them. That the Magi, from that point on, were looking for the coming of the Messiah. Now, just a little bit of historical background. In about 250 BC, the Parthian uh, Empire succeeded in founding an independent kingdom. And during the first century BC, it grew into an empire extending from the river Euphrates to the Indus River uh, and from the... um, River or the uh, Amidaro River, which is right by the Indian Ocean now. So it's a huge uh, territory. After the middle of the first century, Parthia was a real rival to the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire, you see, we know from history, typically the ground it covers, you see there on the map. Well, the Parthian Empire was right next to it, and it was a large, large area. But right in the middle, there was this kind of buffer zone, for want of a better expression, which included Judea, Israel. Now, Pompey, the first Roman conqueror of Jerusalem in 63 BC, had already attacked this uh, Parthian empire and uh, the Armenian outpost there. In 55 BC, Crassus led Roman legions in sacking and destroying Jerusalem and in a subsequent attack on Parthia proper. The Romans were decisively defeated, though, at the Battle of Carhe with the loss of 30,000 troops, including their commander, and the Parthians then counterattacked. So there's lots of battles between these two groups with the token invasion of Armenia, Syria, and Palestine, or what you and I would refer to as Israel. Nominal Roman rule was re-established under Antipo, who was the father of Herod the Great. He, in turn, retreated before a Parthian invasion in 40 BC. We're getting close now to the time of Jesus. And then Mark Antony, I'm sure you're familiar with Antony and Cleopatra and so on, he re-established Roman sovereignty in 37 BC. And like uh, Augustus before him, also embarked on a similarly uh, similarly ill-fated Parthian expedition. His disastrous retreat was followed by another wave of invading Parthians, which swept all Roman opposition completely out of Palestine, including Herod himself, who had to flee to Alexandria, uh, and then finally came back to Rome from there, and then from there, eventually, he does get back to Judea. But with Parthian collaboration, Jewish sovereignty was restored, and Jerusalem was fortified with a Jewish garrison. Herod, by this time, secured from Augustus Caesar the title of king of the Jews. He wasn't really the king of the Jews. He was actually an Egyptian from, from Edom. So he wasn't really any, any, there was no right for him to do that, but he managed to get this title given to him by Rome. 
but it was not for three years, including, uh, sorry, including a five-month siege by Roman troops, that the king was able to occupy his own capital city. But eventually he gets back there. But I've just given you a bit, a bit of history. The, the thing to take out of that, the important thing, is there was a lot of friction between these two rival empires at that time. And so Herod had gained the throne of this rebellious buffer state that was situated between these two mighty contending empires. Now, he knew that at any time his own subjects might conspire to bring the Parthians to, his, to their aid. Jerusalem wanted to be, Israel wanted to be free of Roman rule. Augustus was also getting old. Rome, since the retirement of Tiberius, was without any experienced military commander. And pro-Parthian Armenia was uh, fermenting revolt against Rome, which was successfully accomplished within just two years from this point. So at the time of the birth of Jesus, Herod is close to his final illness. Again, the time was ripe for another Parthian invasion of this area, all of Israel and surrounding, except for the fact that Parthia itself was also racked by internal dissension. There was problems internally. I won't bother going through all the details. It'll be in the notes if you want to go through that. But there was internal problems for them. And one of their own kings was uh, not very popular. And so the Magi certainly rose to prominence again during that period. But it's at this time that this group of Parthian, Persian kingmakers arrive at Jerusalem. You've got the friction already between the Parthian Empire and the Roman Empire. And Herod's right there in the middle of it all, worried that Parthia might try something. And they arrive in the latter days of Herod the Great. Chuck Nuzla makes this comment. He says, the Magi likely traveling in force with unimaginable, unimaginable oriental pomp and adequate cavalry escort to ensure their safe penetration of Roman territory certainly alarmed Herod and the entire populace of Jerusalem. And Herod's reaction was understandably one of fear when one considers the background of the rivalry that was going on between these two empires that had gone on for his entire lifetime. That's a picture by Giovanni. It's called The Journey of the Magi. Now note that they're riding on horses, not camels, as the Persians typically did. There's another picture here. Uh, This is the Adoration of the Magi again, a painting by Botticelli. Notice again the horses in there. Not a big thing, it's just that we've got so many ideas that have been fed to us that we miss the point. This is, interestingly, uh, a painting here that goes back to around about 1460. just refers to as the Magi. What you notice as you look at that is there's not three kings on camels. There's a multitude of people with lots of outriders as well. There's a whole train of people coming down the hillside. And this is more akin with what the Bible tells us. Again, now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came Magi from the east of Jerusalem saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. And when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Herod no doubt thought that this was a political maneuver and some way that the Parthian Empire were going to try and launch some sort of attack or whatever. And the fact that they come and say, where's the one that has been born, the rightful king of Israel? Herod was at least very uncomfortable. And so we carry on in Matthew's account in chapter 2, verse 4. It says, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. I mean, Herod really is a nervous man at this point. And they said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea, because of course they go to the book of Micah, and thus it was written by the prophet, and thou Bethlehem in the land of Judea are not the least of the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. You see, it's right there in the text. Herod is not only being given the location, but he's given this prophecy that there's one who's going to come, who's going to rule Israel. I was reading uh, in the Authenticity of the New Testament by Dr. Bill Cooper few weeks ago um, for something else I was looking at but it was interesting that what we're going to see in the idea of uh, putting the babes of Bethlehem to death and so on as Herod did wasn't an uncommon thing it happened a number of times in fact there have been a number of situations where Roman leaders had massacred people babies and infants to prevent a threat to their own throne 
So what Herod was doing wasn't just some random act of cruelty. I mean, it, it was that. It was an act of cruelty. But it was in keeping with what other senior Romans had done in the hundred years leading up to this point. Whenever they felt threatened, they took decisive action. And that's exactly what Herod did. As he hears about this king that has been born, the rightful king of Israel, and by the way, they could have checked. They could have looked at the lineage. They could have seen all the way back. Now, we've got no account that Herod does that, but there was no question of the legitimacy of Jesus being a rightful king of Israel. Matthew's gospel gives it to us. And then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, so he now gets them together, now he knows where the baby's going to be born, inquired of them diligently at what time the star appeared. Why did he want to do that? Because he, want he wants to know what age range of children he needs to go after. And he sent them to Bethlehem. Why? Well, because Herod has just found out the baby's going to be born in Bethlehem. So he says, right, I want you to go to Bethlehem and find this child. This is Herod's request. He sent them to Bethlehem. Doesn't say they, doesn't say they went to Bethlehem, but Herod said, go to Bethlehem. He said, go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Oh, that's sweet, Herod. No, that's not what he intended to do. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, and Matthew says, look, what happened? They leave Herod. They're going where Herod sent them to go, and suddenly the star which they had saw in the east, I haven't seen it since they saw it originally, and they started their journey, but now they see it again. They come out from Herod, went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was, not baby anymore. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. Why was the star necessary? If, if Herod has just given them directions, why would you need the star? Well, because the star wasn't taking them to Bethlehem because Jesus was no longer there. We've already seen that they went back to Nazareth. And so when they come out from Herod, Herod wants them to go to Bethlehem. They go the other direction, following the star. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child. Matthew's very specific, with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And of course, this is why people say, well, there's three kings, because there's three gifts that are mentioned. Well, not necessarily all the gifts are mentioned, but those that are mentioned are there because they have prophetic significance. Gold, of course, speaks of deity. Frankincense speaks of priesthood, because it was mixed into the showbread by the priests and so on, and myrrh. Well, when it's crushed, becomes an ointment for bruises. In those three things, you've got prophet, priest, and king, all alluded to. But we notice that after they've gone, these magi have gone to see Jesus, being warned of God in a dream, they should not return to Herod. They departed into their own country another way. Well, of course they would have done, because they were now up in Nazareth. So they would go back from that way. And when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child. That's the third time Matthew said young child. And his mother, and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And then, verse 16, Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wrath, and probably, no doubt, a little bit fearful, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, because, of course, that's where he thinks they are, and all the coast thereof, and notice this, from two years old and under. Why two years old and under? Because he specifically asked the Magi, when did you see the star? They told him he now has a reference, a time frame, according to the time which he had diligently acquired of the wise men. So Herod was specifically looking for a child up to two years old. So this is how we know that the Magi did not arrive at the time of the birth of Jesus. They arrived anything up to two years later, and so, of course, never get to go to Bethlehem. It's just a traditional thing that's obfuscated so much of the, the truth of this. 
Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping, and a great mourning, Rachel, weeping for her children, and would not be comforted, because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Now, this could have only, there may only been a very short period of time that they were down in Egypt. They wouldn't necessarily have had to stay very long. Herod, we know, was not very well at this time anyway. And they go down, get out of the way, go to Egypt. Again, fulfilling that prophecy we just read, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel, and we find that they go back to their home, they go back to Nazareth. Just as an interesting aside, and something I was pondering on last week, I was talking to my dad about this as well, my dad's done a lot of studies on this over the years, uh, and interestingly, Pete sent me a, a question which kind of prompted my thinking as well. We know that Jesus was born in 2 BC from the dates we've got. There's at least five markers we looked at for that. But that begs the question, doesn't it? How could Jesus be before be born before Christ? Now, there's lots of theories that are put forward and ideas and, you know, we have, you know, the scribal errors or whatever, you know, they just didn't know the calendar very well. None of those kind of sit very well, but it just struck me. Just as a, an idea, I throw this out there for what it's worth. Does the Bible itself give us a clue here? Because if Jesus indeed was born in 2 BC, and as I said, there's so many factors that, that seem to pinpoint that for us, the Magi arrive in 1 AD, according to this reckoning that we've got in Matthew's count. There is no year zero, okay, by the way. So we go from 2 BC, 1 BC, 1 AD. So there's no year zero. Now, that is when Rome first hear about Jesus. They first hear about Jesus when the Magi arrive and say to Herod, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? That's the first time Jesus appears on the Roman radar. That's the first time any record or document would exist stating that this potential threat to the throne in Israel was there. And of course, what Herod did with killing the babes had no doubt been documented as well. I just wonder, it may not be an error after all. It may be that the reason that we have the dating such as we do, that Jesus born in 2 BC, is because actually the first time Rome get to hear about him is not until the Magi arrive. Just an interesting thought. Now, <clears throat> it's online. I've taught a, a study called The Other Christmas Story. It's the one that's never told. I'm not going to go through it, obviously, now, but I just want to highlight just a couple of the key points in that. You know, we're familiar with the traditional story, and we've gone through a lot of this over the last two weeks. You know, and we might think we know the truth about Christmas, but The Other Christmas Story is incredible because it's sung about in the carols that we sing, and it's in shops, and it amazes me that shops play some of the songs and the carols and the things we've been listening to. You know, supermarkets, shopping malls, they've been declaring this, and yet 90% of churches in this country deny it. Bible colleges will not teach it, and world governments actually seek to undermine it. What is it? Well, it's this. From Luke 1, 26 to 33, the words of Gabriel to Mary. He shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. The throne of Israel. That means Israel's got to have a king. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. This is very politically incorrect. You see, the throne of David is a nationalistic Jewish throne. It demands the reestablishment of Israel, the royal throne of David, a Jewish king, and a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. All of those are required by this. This is why it's amazing that we're allowed to have songs, born is the king of Israel. Jesus never sat on the throne of Israel in his first coming. But every prophecy we have, eight times more prophecies regarding the second coming of Jesus than the first. And they all speak of this one that is coming to rule and reign. Even in that verse, that famous verse we know from Micah chapter 5 verse 2, again, as, the, as it was quoted to Herod, the one that is coming is to be ruler in Israel. Jesus has never yet ruled over Israel, but he will. Now this, of course, has led to this question regarding things like Isaiah 53 and so on, and saying, well, you know, are there two messiahs? Because Isaiah 53 speaks of a suffering servant. Psalm 2 speaks about a messiah who's going to rule with a rod of iron. Well, there's not two messiahs, we know this. There's two comings. First, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. That's why the shepherds came first. 
That's why the shepherds had to come and confirm that Jesus was without spot and blemish. And then the second coming, the king of Israel. That's why it's, there's a gap. God intentionally leaves that gap for the Magi. You know, God could have had the Magi arrive on the day of the birth, but he doesn't. Purposely, there's a gap. Why? Because first Jesus comes as the Lamb of God, then second coming, he comes as the king of Israel. Do you know, in the Bible, Jesus is referred to as king of saints just once. In Revelation 15, verse 3, three times he's referred to as king of kings. But it's referred to as king of Israel six times. He's referred to as a king of the Jews 18 times. He's referred to as thy king, meaning Israel's king, four times. We often talk about King Jesus. But if he's a king at all, he's the king of Israel. 28 times to do with national Israel. Now that's not to say he's not the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is our king, but he's Israel's king. So when you think of Christmas, you should think, firstly, sacrificial lambs. Whenever you think about those shepherds, whenever you think about Bethlehem, the location, the details, the shepherds themselves all speak of that great truth. But again, that is only half the story. And specifically, it's Luke's half of the story. When you think of Christmas, you should also think of the king of the Jews. Because these two aspects are summarized in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. We sing songs about Jesus being the lion and the lamb. Have you ever thought how much of a Christmas theme that really is? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice, with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So the greatest Christmas present ever given was God's son, given as the lamb who would take away the sins of the world, born in the town of sacrificial lambs, inspected by the very shepherds who would approve the lambs to be offered in Jerusalem to atone for sin, laid in the manger and wrapped in swaddling bands, those priestly garments, to prevent any blemish. He is the lamb of God, born on the Feast of Trumpets to proclaim liberty as with the jubilee the trumpets were blown to the captives, slain from the foundation of the world. But he's also the rightful king of Israel. His kingdom was ratified by the kingmakers, by the Magi, who caused all Jerusalem to tremble, who were led by the star to Nazareth to worship and give him gifts. He's coming again to establish his throne. He's going to rule the house of Israel, and he's going to rule the whole world. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these treasures. We thank you that we can see so much more than just the traditional narrative here. The Lord, we see your plan and your purpose, your design from before the foundation of the world because, Lord, your word speaks of our Messiah, our Savior, as being a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And, Lord, you engineered that he will be born in that town of sacrificial lambs, knowing that one day he would be destined to be offered up in Jerusalem to atone for our sin. But Lord, that's not the end of the story. And we thank you because we know that not only did he rise from the dead, but that he is coming again and he will establish his throne and kingdom on this earth. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.